Just a quick note before we begin today, this is the second part of a two-part episode on the animated adaptations of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. In the first part, we talked about the animated Hobbit and the first half of the animated film, The Lord of the Rings. If you want to hear that conversation in order, I recommend going back and listening to the previous episode, Animated Tolkien Part 1. If you don't really care and just want to catch the show, you can proceed as normal. And without further ado, The Animated Tolkien Part 2. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. Yes. We hid those three from him, and he has never touched them. If your quest fails, then nothing can stand against him, and we are defenseless. Yet if you succeed, if the one ring is destroyed, all we built with the three will fade. Time will come here, and Lothlorien will fade. You are the footstep of doom to us, Frodo. Lady Galadriel, I will give you the one ring, if you ask for it. It's too great a matter for me. <laughs> and I came to test your heart. You will give me the great ring freely, and in place of the Dark Lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be evil, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. <laughs> I pass the test. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. And you must depart in the morning. I want to start with something positive to say before I um, devolve into thrashing of teeth. <laughs> I agree with David about the faithfulness of the adaptation. And I was surprised to see so many scenes that were shot for shot what appeared in Peter Jackson's version. So there's a lot of similarity in scenes between the animated version here and Peter Jackson's version, which we'll talk about more when we get to those films. But I wonder sometimes how much of that is a factor of Tolkien, who describes everything in such elaborate detail. His books are very detailed, particularly about the scenery. And how much of that is like Jackson just copying Bakshi. It made me want to go back and reread the book to see whether it is just described in such beautiful detail that all you have to do is render that moment by moment onto the screen and you have a perfect scene. Thinking specifically of the scene with the Nazgul rider when the hobbits are all on the road and they realize like, oh no, we're on the road. Like we have to get off and hide. And they hide under the tree root and the Nazgul is like leaning over. The version in Bakshi's and in Peter Jackson's they could be interchangeable. They're done so well. Even like the tremors of Frodo's hands as he's about to put on the ring and 
then somehow manages to stop himself at the last second. That, to me, looked on screen when I saw this film at eight years old exactly how I had pictured it in my mind from reading the book. So I don't know how much of that is like a direct copy or that's like just that well-developed of a scene in the book. But then there are other scenes like, for example, when they're at the end of The Prancing Pony and they're all like in their beds and the... the uh, ring race all have their swords and they're ready to like attack them yes that looked like like peter jackson's like okay guys this is what we're going to film and he just used it as his animatics which is basically your animated version of storyboards for his crew and be like okay this is what we're shooting today you know (laughs) (laughs) because they look so similar and The best lines that I remember from the book and from Jackson's version also appear here. And so like clearly Beagle has done a really great job of identifying key moments, key lines, rendering some of the scenes perfectly in a way that captures the spirit of the book. That said, (laughs) there were some animation choices that I just like could not it it was like making my eyes bleed um some of them the hobbits seemed to me to be rendered as children rather than as small adults and it completely changed the feeling of the story for me that their faces were chubby and childlike and that they didn't seem like young men about to embark on an adventure in a world war one going to war kind of way but more like children who were being swept up in a grown-up's adventure. And that feeling just stayed with me for the entire film. That and the fact that none of the soldiers were wearing pants. (laughs) None of them. (laughs) And, you know, it's... I think, like, the style of the tunic they were wearing seemed period-appropriate, but they should have been wearing leggings or, or tall boots or like anything but like the short shorts on Aragorn and then all of the other soldiers was really distracting and disturbing I mean like it just seemed like it was too short to cover all of his bits too short <laughs> and so I, there were just like a few elements like that where I'm watching it and just being like what what are they doing um that and The rotoscoping in the tavern scene and with the Nazgul Rider early on is extremely well done and still felt like animation, even though you can tell that it's it's a different style. But as you get towards the end of the film, it doesn't even feel like animation anymore. It's you're watching a live action film that has some like weird dyes and colorings in it. And maybe it's an issue with the digitization of this film and that in the theater, maybe it was not as jarring but watching the digital version now by the time you get to those battle scenes in Helm's Deep it didn't even feel like watching an animated film anymore and it didn't feel like a good live action version either and maybe they ran out of money (laughs) who knows but I felt like the film started strong and then started to lose its way as it went along. I would have to agree because it does kind of feel like the movie started out great and then as it went on they just kept adding more and more rotoscoping to the film and I don't know if they were just trying to make it more cool and psychedelic, you know, or to fill in the gaps in what they may not have had production-wise, but yeah, I can see that. I will point out there's at one point about the pants, at one point Boromir kicks an orc and it's clear that he has some sort of undergarment on underneath his short skirt so 
Um. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So, so the bits are bits protected. Are, bits are really protected. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> Fritz the cat. Fritz the cat. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Eric. Please say that we're we're like the big jockstrap looking things like they did in a clockwork orange, you know, could have been like that. (laughs) Again, it's going to be hard for me to separate nostalgia from my appreciation for it now. I distinctly remember my friend Kevin's birthday party. The whole birthday party went to one of those one screen neighborhood theaters back in those days, if you remember before multiplexes. And even as an eight-year-old, I always liked animation and thought that there was room for animation to be something that wasn't a kid's medium. And I feel like this got a lot of bad reviews or whatever because people were comparing it to Disney kid movies because that was their only frame of reference for animation. Or they weren't fans of Tolkien's works and didn't understand why it just sort of ended hastily which is actually a fair criticism because as a movie, that's my biggest beef with it. I love rotoscoping and I think the ring race looked amazing. I kind of liked the choices they did with the orcs, which looked like nothing else I've ever seen on screen anywhere ever. And not all of it was stuff that they shot. They allegedly took footage from Alexander Nevsky and rotoscoped that for some of the battle scenes. It allowed them to get little things here and there that you don't normally get. Like there's one part where Gandalf turns to Sam and Sam's already creeped out and he just sort of like does this little spook at him, like, (laughs) which is like a great little thing that you would never get if an actor hadn't thought to do that. And when Aragorn trips while they're running. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, they decided to keep that in from the live action shoot. I liked other little touches that they threw in here, like when they're sitting by the fire, Aragorn's telling the tale of Baron and Luthien, right? Mm-hmm. There was also another part where Bilbo was talking about Tenuviel, which is Luthien, when they were in Rivendell. So I loved little touches like that, which told me that they were taking the material seriously. I did have some questions David, do you remember, was Gandalf present when they were fighting off a race on Weathertop or not? So this is something that I, when Jackson's movies were coming out, I hoped to see depicted. But before Aragorn and the Hobbits get to Weathertop, they see this like lightning battle going on uh, at the top of Weathertop from a distance. And when they get there, they see evidence that Gandalf has been there fighting with somebody. Uh, At least they assume it's Gandalf. You know, Gandalf then later tells the story when they're when they're at Rivendell, but he is not there when Aragorn and the Hobbits are there and are attacked by the Ringwraiths. He comes to Weathertop to see if he could see what's going on, and the Ringwraiths attack him, and he barely escapes with his life. I so wished that there's a movie version of that because I think that would be so cool, but uh, it does not exist in any movies. But it's uh, told mostly in flashback in the books. I'm glad I'm remembering some stuff that my brain isn't totally turned to mush. But speaking of other things that got left out, once again, Glorfindel gets the shaft. We'll talk more about this when we get to Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Did you guys notice that they left the S off of Saruman? Half the time. Actually, come to think of it, Tolkien probably should have done that too. He's got these two 
bad guy characters. One's called Sauron and the other's Saruman. You know, <laughs> I think he could have come up with a better name for one of the two. Also, side note, did anyone notice that Saruman was animated to be a little orientalized? I mean, in the same way that it was weird to me that Aragorn looked almost like a stone-faced Indian type character. It was very weird how Saruman was animated to me. Slanting eyes. It was like very weird. I didn't get that from the animation, <laughs> but I got a little bit of that from the voice acting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it was a little bit Dr. Zinn from yeah. Johnny Quest. Yeah, yeah. That was the vibe I was getting. <laughs> well, and also this was a period of time when media in general and entertainment in general was trying to be more inclusive. They were trying to just not be all white people all the time when they would present characters in movies, television, and whatever. The perfect example is Sesame Street. You have pretty much every ethnicity represented on that show. That was a period of time where they were starting to do that more and more often. I just remember watching shows and, you know, in the group, there was always at least a girl and a black kid, you know, maybe even a kid of the Asian persuasion. I feel like that makes sense for that period of time. Also, side note, did you notice that when they finally did show the people of Fishtown, they all, all the men kind of looked like Burt Reynolds? <laughs> it was the 70s. What do you want? I know. Well, I mean, Burt Reynolds was like the hot guy back then. But I just was like, oh, my gosh, these they all look like Burt Reynolds hair models like you would see on a poster at a hair salon in the 70s of all the men's standard haircuts, except they were all Burt Reynolds. Are you talking about the Lake Town and the Hobbit uh, animated? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Lake Town and the Hobbit. I'm sorry. That's that. So I'm actually reaching back to the previous yeah. episode. But yes, I, I'm sorry. I meant to mention that. It just they all reminded me of Burt Reynolds. And that was just a weird thought that came across you, my you're mind. Not alone. There, there's a review for the movie out there that uh, decides that Bard the Bowman is basically Burt Reynolds and refers to him in the rest of the uh, rest of the review as as <laughs> Burt the Bowman. Okay. <laughs> So, okay, so I'm not let's, wrong. let's bring us back to one, my reactions, and two, like this movie. <laughs> Sorry. The only character design that I really did not like. I'm I was good with Aragorn looking kind of Native American. Legolas's eyes were a little bit more slanted than I would have liked, but that that was fine. I the only character design I did not like, and I did not like it when I was eight years old either. I remember this. Treebeard was nowhere near big enough and impressive enough of a tree. So that was really my only character design note. I would have liked to have seen him as like much bigger and much fuller of a tree, you know, than he was in this. Yeah, he was a little carrot-like, not not very tree-like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say the book describes the Ents not as looking like trees. They are some sort of humanoid figure that can easily blend in with trees, but actually, when you get a good look at an ant, it doesn't look like a tree that can walk. That's clearly not what Jackson went with his interpretation of ants, and I don't know if Bashki is somewhere in between that, but uh, they are not supposed to look like trees once you get a good look at them. Maybe it's just a hard thing. Everybody has their own version of what an ant looks like, but to me, right. Treebeard was not nearly majestic enough. Mm -hmm. And I definitely got the idea that he was 
big, old, and majestic. You know, yeah. he says that some call me Fanghorn, some call me, you know, I have been around. You know, I have no side in this because no one's on my side. Right. You know, I predate all of you and I will be here after all of you, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of an attitude. That was my one little nitpick about character design. My other nitpick is so much is made in this epic story about the reforging of Aragorn's sword. But in this, suddenly he's just got a reforged sword. What I need to clarify, because it's been so long since I've read it, and I'm going to defer to David again on this, when does that sword get reforged? It gets reforged at uh, Rivendell before they start off uh, towards Moria. So so it's it's after the Council of Elrond, but before they de- depart. Uh, and in, in the book, it's sort of like... Oh, we're sending out scouts to see what's going on. We're sending messages to various people. Oh, and by the way, we reforged Aragorn's sword and we're getting set to go. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it meant more to me. I read The Fellowship, I think at age six. The reforging of Aragorn's sword meant something to me. And it doesn't seem to as much in here. But okay. I remembered that I had this magazine. (laughs) Fantastic (laughs) films. Yeah, Yes, that's a Cylon on it. Yeah, I was going to say, it says Battlestar Battle Galactica. We've got to do an original versus Ron Moore Battlestar Galactica episode, too. <laughs> Absolutely. This came from the supermarket. $2, February 1979. I got my mom to buy it for me while we were there buying groceries. Aww. It had an interview with Ralph Bakshi. And I got it because it's Lord of the Rings. But this is how I learned about Ralph Bakshi. Because in this, the interview with Ralph Bakshi, they go into... A bunch of his films like it's a very long interview and they talk about heavy traffic and they talk about coonskin and they talk about hey good looking and they talk about wizards all these bakshi films and i hadn't seen any of them and they weren't really for kids but i had to hunt them all down eventually in the 80s when vhs came around and we had a vcr i went hunting for all of the bakshi films on VHS and I became a huge Bakshi fan and I really wanted and he probably wanted also this film to rocket him up in his career and he continued to make stuff for a long time but he went back to independent animation after this film because it really wasn't the success that they had hoped it would be and it's not again until Cool World where you get that mix of live action and animation that really played to Bakshi's skills again in mainstream Hollywood. I got to say, I'm more lean, more toward Rosie. I really liked this. I just didn't like that it wrapped up so hastily. And I would have loved to have seen Bakshi do the second half of this. One question I have is how much adaptation happened after they knew this was going to be the only one. Obviously, bringing a heroic end to the Battle of Helm's Deep to kind of give it an ending. But other omissions are the gifts of Galadriel, which become very important if they ever did make the second movie. Yes, Gimli getting a piece of crystal with Galadriel's hair becomes very important. No, I just, well, the, I'm just the, kidding. Well, the feel of Galadriel does, I think. But uh, also, um, no mention of Arwen whatsoever, which, again, we can talk about who's replacing Glorfindel in various movie versions. But were they not planning on including Aragorn and Arwen's marriage in a set part two? Or was Arwen cut out when they realized they were only going to make part one? So this came out in 78. 
then the film we're about to talk about actually has a copyright date I noticed of 79, but it came out in 1980. Year 1980 brought the final end to the Beatles because unfortunately we lost John Lennon, who was shot and killed in New York City. The Rubik's Cube made its debut. Pac-Man arcade game made its debut that year. It's also unfortunately the start of the Iran and Iraq war. CNN made its debut. Post-it notes were released, which changed the game for everybody. I love post-it <laughs> notes, and I use them all the time. The U.S. defeated the USSR in the Miracle on Ice, quote-unquote. A fire destroyed the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. Ronald Reagan was elected president of the United States, and we also learned who shot J.R. If anybody watched Dallas back in the 80s, that was a big major thing, and I remember even seeing people that had bumper stickers on their car that said, I know who shot JR, <laughs> which was a lot of fun, especially since my parents were very religious. We didn't watch soap operas, so I had no idea what all of that was about. I had to find out from my quote-unquote secular friends, who's JR? What's that? Kramer versus Kramer pretty much did the sweep on the Oscars. Other films that picked up some Oscars were Aliens, All That Jazz, and Apocalypse Now. A year passes, nothing happens, and then suddenly this appears on TV again, Rankin and Bass, The Return of the King. They had always planned to make another film after The Hobbit, they heard that Bakshi's version was in the works and that it was going to cover Fellowship and part of Two Towers, but they started working on Return of the King. And originally it had been envisioned as a sequel to The Hobbit. Its working title, instead of being called Return of the King, was called The Hobbit Part Two. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, sorry, I, I couldn't resist chiming in, in there. You were seeming, seeming to speak ill of the film as if they had, you know, just, just forgotten to, to include Fellowship and Two Towers in Rankin and Bass's plan. But no, of course, you know, if this, the whole trilogy would have been better if, if uh, Rankin and Bass had been allowed to make musical versions of every part of Lord of the Rings. No, but... no, wait a minute. I just want to say that Bakshi had originally wanted the soundtrack of the Lord of the Rings feature film to be done by Led Zeppelin. Oh, that would have been awesome. How cool would that have been? So, okay, we'll go back to your hippie hobbit, all right? Now, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that the Return of the King seemed to have come out of nowhere after a year of nothing. Came out of nowhere, maybe, but the Tolkien estate at least had their eye on the project. I have to say, one interesting through line of all of our discussions about the Lord of the Rings adaptations is the role of the Tolkien estate and what they pay attention to, what they greenlight, and where they decide to be a stick in the mud. They filed a lawsuit, actually, against Rankin and Bass on the basis that they hadn't secured the U.S. and Canadian television rights. But it was settled amicably and the film was allowed to proceed. So that might explain why there was a little bit of delay. We had 1977, 1978, and then had to wait a while for part three. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is how every person who goes off to set an adaptation goes into it thinking, I'm going to be entirely faithful to the book. And Rankin and Bass actually are no different. They went into this saying, we're not going to add anything that's not in the book 
other than musical numbers. <laughs> but um, they went into this thinking they were going to try to stay faithful to Return of the King. I'm sure in our reactions, we will discuss whether or not they succeeded. I already gave you some information about John Houston, who again reappears in Return of the King and serves as sort of a narrator to help tie the story together. Speaking of which, one of the immediate problems they had with going straight from The Hobbit to Return of the King was how they were going to make this narrative leap. And they decided the best way to do it would be to create a framing device. So here already, they're failing to, to not add things that weren't in the book. But actually, I think it does a pretty good job of setting the tone and bringing people back up to speed of what the quest was and who Frodo is and introducing the characters and still giving it this kind of air of mystery. Frodo of the Nine Fingers. Okay, all right, all right, stop right, stop right there. <laughs> I love in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, where they kill the minstrel and eat him. <laughs> and there was much rejoicing. There was much rejoicing when they yeah. killed him. <laughs> all you people out there, all you super fans who wanted Tom Bombadil in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, this is kind of a preview of what you would have gotten had you had Tom Bombadil. <laughs> so I like to think of that character, the minstrel, as being Tom Bombadil. <laughs> so they they start off this story with Bilbo and Frodo and Gandalf and Elrond and the minstrel. And Sam and the other hobbits all reflecting on the concluded journey and this starting at the end and then going back to the beginning again becomes kind of a theme of both the Hobbit and Return of the King, this there and back again kind of idea. We go from this framing device to the battle, and then we spend a lot of the film going back and forth between what's happening at Gondor and what's happening in Mordor. And Gandalf really ties this film together, and I don't think this would be possible without John Huston's beautiful voice. He manages to keep this ping-ponging from feeling too exhausting, and instead you feel like you're sitting by the fire listening to Gandalf tell an epic tale of something that has happened in the past. Other notable voice credits for this film, and then I'll wrap up the production notes here. Casey Kasem, best known for the role as Shaggy in Scooby-Doo, does the voice of Mary. Roddy McDowell, who was Caesar from the original Planet of the Apes, played Samwise. And Theodore Bickle, who is best known as a Broadway actor, the original Captain Von Trapp in the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical of Sound of Music, and the person who holds the record for most performances as Tevya, this guy, Theodore Bickle, played Aragorn. And then, of course, we have Brother Theodore credited as just Theodore returning as Gollum. And there we shall wrap the production notes before jumping into our reactions. I'll go back and talk about the music a little bit because I know we love it so much. (laughs) 
Rankin and Bass has a similar problem that, that they're following up from their Hobbit movie that everybody loved and, and, and whatnot. So they sort of have to make Lord of the Rings fit what they did with the Hobbit. And that's exactly what Jackson was dealing with, only in the reverse, where he had to make the Hobbit sort of fit what people expected from his Lord of the Rings movies. So music was very important in the book The Hobbit, and that comes through in the Rankin Bass adaptation. So they sort of have to make uh, Return of the King fit that love of music as well, even though it feels very much out of place in this version. I mean, uh, uh, where there's a whip, there's a way. Surely that that needs a discussion all of its own, but I, I won't go into that. Uh, I'll also point out, just jumping back to The Hobbit a little bit, that most of the extra stuff that Jackson puts into his Hobbit is more Lord of the Rings prequel stuff. And that's not in the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, except they do make a couple choices. Gollum's deep hatred of Bilbo, they really focus on, on that at the end of the Gollum scene. And they focus on Gandalf saying that the ring isn't what it seems to be, Bilbo, and the story is just beginning. Those are two very deliberate choices to focus on those at the midway point and at the end that really are Lord of the Rings prequel uh, in the Hobbit movies. It's kind of interesting. I didn't know ahead of time that they were planning on doing a, a part two all along. So it makes sense now that why, why that was done in The Hobbit as well. For a fan of the books, anything past the breaking of the Fellowship, anything past Fellowship of the Ring is going to be hard to adapt because in the calendar it keeps jumping back and forth and jumping back and forth. Two Towers book on the calendar goes much farther for Frodo and Sam than it does for Gandalf and Aragorn. With Return of the King, the Battle of Pelennor Fields happens much earlier than Frodo and Sam approaching Mount Doom. And so I think it's interesting, you know, eventually we'll get to compare this to Jackson's Return of the King, but how they deal with that adaptation of the calendar being very divergent for the two different sets of characters. And here I think uh, it's interesting that they decided to focus on the Frodo and Sam story and then the war story is just kind of like, oh yeah, this is going on too. It doesn't follow the book so much in terms of how things line up. But it's like, yeah, this war is happening, but let's focus on the Frodo and Sam story. So I think that's a pretty interesting choice they make. And in some ways, they include a lot of things in the Frodo and Sam story that aren't included in other adaptations. For instance, the um, Watchers at Kirith Ungol and this gate that Sam has to break through. So that's a little interesting detail. And that opening sequence of the choices of Samwise, where he imagines himself taking the ring and transforming Mordor into this amazing garden and everything, everything being peaceful and wonderful, but then decides that, you know, his own lone garden is all he needs back home in the Shire. And that's really the heart of Sam. This movie gets that and shows that in, in pretty great detail. That's something completely missing from the Jackson version. So I think that's really interesting that they include that detail. I'll also point out personally, this was the first of the three animated movies that I saw. Somehow I saw them in reverse order in my life. I was about halfway through Fellowship of the Ring when I saw this on TV, and I didn't have the self-control not to watch it, so I basically spoiled the end of <laughs> Lord of the Rings by watching this on TV while reading Fellowship of the Ring. So that took away some of the mystery and magic of my enjoyment of reading Lord of the Rings when I got to The Return of the King. So this is, this is kind of a, a, a weird one for me, but it does some things very well, and not surprisingly, some things are a little bit bizarre. And of course, what always happens is 
the romance between Fairmare and Eowyn is just left to one significant glance in one scene. But oh well. <laughs> Pretty cool that Casey Kasem did uh, do some voice work on the film, so that was neat. Casey Kasem, Johanna said best known as the voice of Shaggy, but for I know, I know, I know. For our generation, <laughs> best known as the host of American Top 40. <laughs> That's right, American Top 40, man, every weekend. Every weekend. <laughs> I, th- I, th- um, I thought he was best known as a family friend of the Kardashians. <laughs> I didn't even know he was a family friend of the Kardashians. Actually, this is the first and last time we will talk about the Kardashians on this podcast. <laughs> I am, I am, I am laying down. I am Elrond. I am the king. I'm like, laying down the, the law on this. He is, they are never to be spoken of here. I'm in a similar position to David where, you know, I read The Hobbit, watched the animated Hobbit, and had read Fellowship and then saw this movie. You know, I really enjoyed Fellowship of the Ring and I don't think I had put together like, oh no, the trilogy is a whole experience that you really want to do all at once. And, you know, I thought they were all like part of a series or something. I I don't think I quite understood what I was getting into. And my brother at the time was too young to read the books. He was old enough to watch the Rankin and Bass version of Return of the King. So unfortunately... It's it's like, you know, a baby chick imprinting with its mother, <laughs> where I have I have imprinted with the Rankin and Bass version of Return of the King in terms of my emotional center with the book. And one of the things I think this adaptation does really well is something that David alluded to, what it feels like to have the ring, that feeling of like, I am all powerful and I'm radiating this domineering thing that affects other people. And I think Jackson kind of gets at it a little bit. Like you see how worn down Frodo appears from carrying the ring and you see how changed Bilbo is. Like there's this like really scary shot of him being like, ah, um, in sort of an almost Palpatine like moment, but it's not spelled out as clearly in Jackson as it is here. And Although films that are this didactic, I don't usually love. I really like it here. I really like the glowing of the character and just making it clear, like, this ring is a corrupting influence. And the music around it just grounded that feeling for me as a kid. And seeing it again, I remembered, like, oh, okay, this really made sense to me. The other thing, and I I know, Eric, you're going to want to jump in here as well. I think... The scene where um, where the Nazgul king is struck down is rendered so perfectly in this film and animated beautifully. Like the Nazgul king with the, the flames and the eyes floating there is legitimately, you know, frightening and and just, you know, you feel the weight of the moment in that scene. But I don't want to steal Eric's thunder. I know you want to talk about this scene as well. Everybody's talking about when they saw this. So I feel like I got to go back and provide the timeline for when I saw this. I saw this for the first time preparing for this show. So how can that be? Because I knew what was in it and everything like that. Well, let me go back to The Hobbit. That was on TV. And I probably saw it on TV. But later I had 
bugged my parents. I saw in the newspaper that some church group in like Loveland, Ohio, or someplace way out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you got to understand, Tolkien was a Christian. And so Christians like to push his works, kind of a lot of mm-hmm. the way that like Scientologists push L. Ron Hubbard. C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien, you get pushed by a lot of church groups and they ended up in, as Johanna can attest, church library, chapel libraries and stuff. <laughs> How ironic it is that these things were pushed in church. And this was also during the same time when people were backmasking records and burning them. You have wizards. You have all kinds of magic. You have all of these different characters that could be viewed as demonic yet Christians are embracing Tolkien. And they also embraced C.S. Lewis. I'm not trying to bash anybody, but at the same time, this is just so mind-blowingly hypocritical to me because this is something that the Christian community does all the time where they're like, this is bad, but this is good. And this is good because that author was supposedly a Christian or this musician is supposedly a Christian. So then it's okay. But if it's somebody that wasn't a Christian that did it, then it's not okay. And it's, it's demonic and we need to burn that record or burn that VHS tape or whatever. One of the things I find interesting is with C.S. Lewis's works, it is very explicitly the Christian Jesus story. Mm-hmm. I don't actually get that out of Tolkien's work. Like a lot of the themes are similar, like the Mm -hmm. theme of self-sacrifice and the fight against evil. There's a lot of themes, but I don't read this as an explicit like, oh, and that's the Jesus resurrection moment in this story. Like (laughs) Gandalf's return and Frodo's sacrifice don't ring that way to me. Mm -hmm. That's a big question because I wanted to get into this. And this is a question I wanted to throw out to David. The return of the king is Aragorn not a Christ figure. I, I don't know that uh, that is an interpretation I've ever considered or even heard. I, you, you hear it a lot about Gandalf. You hear it about Frodo to some extent. Uh, they both uh, ascend into heaven at the end and, uh, by ship this time. But uh, uh, I, I don't know that Aragorn has ever... Um, I've never seen anybody refer to Aragorn as a Christ figure. I would agree with Joanna that that the um, Chronicles of Narnia, and maybe this is an entryway drug for uh, uh, Christians uh, and fantasy, that, you know, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is directly just an adaptation of, of the of Christian gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Tolkien did not like Lewis's use of analogy in that way. He didn't like uh, Lewis's work doing that. Tolkien was a very strong Christian and actually helped convert Lewis, but he felt his writing was far more thematic and example, not actually um, rewriting the gospel to fit uh, Narnia, which Lewis was. But uh, um, Aragorn as a Christ figure, that's that's really interesting. He, he's got lots of... Uh, uh, basically, you know, everything about Aragorn, in, in any way somebody can come and claim kingship by the, by the relics, by the uh, ancestry, by marshalling the armies and, and saving the capital city, you know, every way a king can return, he does. Like, uh, Tolkien throws everything out the window. But well, I'm, not only that. He's prophesied right. as being good. The, the king will return someday. Now, granted, we get that with King Arthur also. Right. But to me, there has always been a Christian undertone there, whether Tolkien intended it or not. Now, it's not as 
in your face as C.S. Lewis, who's a blatant like right. proselytizer for the church with his books. Like Aslan right. is Christ and he's not going to let you forget that. Right. But I see it anyway. The imagery of Aragorn returning as the king is probably more tied to Tolkien's mission of creating a mythology for the British people. I would definitely agree that this is more Tolkien writing the true story of the King Arthur legend and throwing in a little bit of Charlemagne in there as well. The reader is the final arbiter of what's in the work, right? But for the writer, I think this is more his version of the true story of Arthur. For our non-U.S. viewers, when we talk about Christianity and the church in the U.S., it's not monolithic. In England, they might think about like the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. But here you get a very wide range of spectrum. So there may very well have been some condemning this as being satanic and evil and stuff like that for having wizards, while at the same time another Christian denomination holding it up. This comes out of American Christian Protestantism. Plain and simple. You didn't come across this a lot in the Catholic Church. When I've spoken with my Catholic friends, this was like, no big deal. But the Protestant Christian culture dates way back to Puritanism. There's a whole lot of Puritanism that still flows through our culture today. That's why it was a bigger deal in the United States. There's a whole Christian media. There's Christian television. There's Christian radio. There's Christian rock music. There's Christian genres. There's all kinds of things. That the Christian market here has taken secular things and created their own version of it, and that's okay. And it's just, a, it's a bigger thing here in the United States than I think it is in other countries. You raise a really good point, Rosie, in that Tolkien was a Catholic and not like a Puritan American Protestant type Christian. And mm -hmm. that might also explain why Lord of the Rings feels more about the larger themes and also the importance of ritual in the story. Mm -hmm. Ritual is very important to the Catholic faith as well. You know, the attention to different kinds of ceremonies or how relics and objects have special importance, like big special swords, you know, like mm -hmm. that that is more in keeping with a Catholic kind of feeling than it would be with a Protestant sort of story. Oh, yeah. I mean, the ring says it all. Yeah. And, and I'll throw out there that although throughout his life, uh, Tolkien was writing this with kind of a sense of right and wrong, dark and light, informed by his own personal Christianity, some of the more esoteric and theologic questions that Middle-earth brings up were some of the things he struggled with and would write notes or write little bits of stories to try and figure out towards the end of his life. Uh, last time I mentioned that he never really came to a good decision about who the orcs were and what they were and where they came from. And this came from him sitting down and thinking, now wait a minute, if my original origin story for orcs is true, what does that mean about their souls? And are their souls redeemable or not in a Christian way? And this sends him into a flurry of trying to figure out how do I mesh the soul of an orc with my Christian faith? So some of these questions Tolkien never answered during his lifetime as well. Okay, so let me bring us all the way back to how we got off on this tangent, which is how I, the order I saw this stuff in. <laughs> <laughs> which I found out that there was a church group that had a 16 millimeter print of this film. And I did a classic 
Eric, like I did this in college when I wanted a free meal, I would go pledge a fraternity just to get the meal. <laughs> no interest in actually being a frat boy, but I would go to get the free dinner. Well, this is the same thing. I convinced my parents that I had to see this and they're like, you've seen it. And I'm like, yeah, but I haven't seen a film version. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's different. <laughs> it's different. I'm a film geek. I convinced my parents to take me out. I had to go pretend I was interested in this church group, sit with a bunch of kids <laughs> I didn't know to get to the film print screening of The Hobbit and then had to sit through the Bible study like afterward. But it was worth it just so that I could see it on film projected on a screen. You know, these are the depths to which my 10 year old self would whore himself out to to get to see fantasy film you got to remember fantasy films and tv were really rare in the 70s and early 80s so i have to know did did you actually go did you follow through have to follow through with an altar call in order to see the movie no it was this was one of those hippie christian groups right so like it was right, a whole bunch right. of kids in like some kind of you know those those places that are like a you usually see it like um like at parks like national parks where there's like a big cafeteria room with all the, the bench tables and they served, served us like Kool-Aid probably and some crappy mac and cheese or something. And then like yeah. screen the movie and, you know, anyway, my parents weren't keen about taking me to it, but they did it. So that's how I saw the Hobbit. And then the Bakshi film, I already told you, I saw at my friend's birthday party. This I never saw. Somehow, and I guess it's because we only had one TV and it probably aired opposite football or something, right? And so I never got to see it. And finding it on home video was practically impossible. So I had always assumed that I had seen it because much like with The Hobbit, I hadn't seen it, but I had heard it. I still have my 45 record read along book of the Return of the King, which is nowhere near as expansive as The Hobbit or whatever. This is a little 45 picture book. Disney actually put it out, which is interesting because mm -hmm. I didn't know that there was some sort of alliance between Disney and Rankin Bass, but it has pictures and words. And I still have kept this all these years, even though I no longer have my Hobbit box set, which I really wish I had. So that's how I knew stuff about this without having seen it before. As far as I can remember, I don't think I'd seen it before because this seemed totally new to me, unlike The Hobbit, where I knew every line in it. I did think the minstrel, who I call Tom Bombadil, <laughs> I do think the minstrel was a nice way to recap a ton of information. So we talked about how cool the Nazgul is, and I'll get to that Eowyn scene in a second. But that's one version of the way the Nazgul are depicted in this animation. Another is as an animated skeleton, whatever. And this is where I have my moment like Johanna had where her partner came in during the troll scene. <laughs> my girlfriend walks into the room when the animated Nazgul is on screen, the one that has the skull face. And she's like, oh, they're cute. <laughs> and i'm like what the nazgul they're cute you gotta know she's a little bit of a goth girl and so i look at her and she's like what am i not supposed to find nazgul adorable <laughs> <laughs> that's hysterical <laughs> i think that the songs are really heavy-handed they're exactly what bother me about folk music and stuff like that a lot they're very hippie 
it's so easy not to try. If there's one theme that we hear about over and over again from the 1960s, it's social pressure to like actually get out and do something. I agree. I did not love It's So Easy Not to Try, but I actually really like the song from The Hobbit that I think shows up in some of the themes in Return of the King as well. At least in my research, it was noted that they were bringing back this song. The Greatest Adventure song, actually to me, I know it's folk music and you guys are not going to be a fan. I was raised on Prairie Home Companion, so like all this folk stuff is like totally my jam. (laughs) But The Greatest Adventure, like that to me sits in my gut. That one worked. I agree with you, though. Overall, the songs in Return of the King are just a little too much a lot of the time. I agree that the greatest adventure is what lies ahead today and tomorrow are yet to be said. You know, the chances, the changes there are all yours to make. The mold of your life is in your hands to break. I can sing the whole song. I know it. (laughs) I like that one. I agree that that's one of the better ones. But it's so easy not to try. That bugs me. And then there's also some conflict in my mind over the themes of these songs, because then there's the song Leave Tomorrow Till It Comes, which thematically seems to be exactly the opposite of It's So Easy Not to Try, where they're like, let's leave that till tomorrow. <laughs> so it's the procrastination song, which, by the way, has a really weird visuals that go along with it, where they're waving to the happy orcs, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought orcs were just supposed to be permanently angry. Can't we all just get along? (laughs) Mm, Don't make me go off on a baby boomer rant. (laughs) I have a quick question for you, though, Eric. If Led Zeppelin had done the soundtrack for the Bashki, but if they went more Led Zeppelin 3 folk Led Zeppelin, how disappointed would you have been? Maybe a little bit, but at least it's a little more rocky. I mean, let's be honest. Misty Mountain Hop would have been in there. Ramble on, you know, that. Oh, that would have been oh, so yeah. good. That, that would have been, been awesome. Oh, my mm. God. That would have been so good. Anyway, um, but instead we get them waving to the happy orcs and leave tomorrow till it comes. I guess some of this is making it for kids. I did not like the way that the orcs were portrayed, which Bilbo called goblins. I like how they finally, they, they, yes. they corrected. Yes, I, I made that note also of orcs, vile creatures, whatever the name, Bilbo called them goblins. <laughs> and I was just like, hey. But they look like Muppets in this. Yeah, maybe more like the goblins from uh, Labyrinth. But no, no, I, I don't want to open that can of worms. We'll get to Labyrinth in another one. <laughs> I was going to say, what you doing there, man? Like, that would be like a full 45-minute yeah, yeah, conversation. No, you don't drop a bomb like that into a group like this, or else we'll start talking about David Bowie and cod pieces and stuff like that. So, yeah, all right. We need to save that for another episode, because we should definitely do that movie. Oh, Just God. throwing it out there. It's David, you see what I got to deal with? I opened the can of worms. And that, does that eventually take you to that weird Tom Cruise fantasy movie that I'm not even remembering what it was called? But Legend. Legend, yeah. Legend. <laughs> yeah. Legend with Tom and with um, Tim Curry. Yeah. Oh, stop it, stop it, stop it. Too many fantasy films, too little time. Yeah, that's the truth. But I did think that the goblins here looked very Muppet-like and kid-like. I didn't like how the, like, one of the most key points about this is Frodo of the Nine Fingers, but we don't see the finger getting bit off. You know, it's kind of like not shown. I wanted to see a bloody finger. I wanted to see. The... I don't know. I thought it 
was plenty graphic for a PG film. I believed that his finger had been bitten off and that he was writhing in pain. And then, like, Gollum, like, sucks the ring off and throws the finger away. It was... What? It was plenty, plenty fine. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we can just keep getting deeper and deeper into this. But if there's one takeaway from this whole thing that I want people to get, it's go to YouTube and look up Brother Theodore. Some saint out there put up all three hours of Brother Theodore's appearances on David Letterman in one video, YouTube video called Brother Theodore Complete Collection Letterman 1982 to 1989. You got to watch this guy. That's my takeaway. That's the one thing I want to plug from this time. I guess my takeaway from this is that some saints should go out there and, and film a, a true Faramir and Eowyn romance and, and wedding and do that justice. That's what's missing from all the versions of this. One of the great things that Johanna set me up for, but I forgot to mention, is the reveal of Eowyn when she throws off her helmet is done better in this, I think, than it was done in Jackson's Lord of the Rings that particular scene has always stuck with me. I've always loved it. I was just going to say it benefits from the fact that they get to edit out the Mary and Dernhelm stuff where you have to think, was Mary an idiot for not realizing that's Eowyn? This adaptation benefits from not having those scenes with Dernhelm and Mary. There's something good and bad about each of these adaptations, and I, I think that's a really interesting thought for just adapting literature to film in general. I really, you know, enjoyed seeing the series and seeing the different adaptations of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. It was all fantastic, but I'm totally on board with somebody redoing the whole thing with a soundtrack to Led Zeppelin and including The Wedding. I think they should do it, and I hope that it happens someday. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Well, Led Zeppelin would have been good for the 70s. If it was made nowadays, I would like to hear Hammerfall do the soundtrack or a real mm. like epic metal band. It's going to be interesting thinking about how these films were all rendered musically. I mean, we didn't actually talk about it much with the Bakshi film, but the score for that film was actually very well received and, and well done. And we, you know, we talked about some of the music with Jackson's version of The Hobbit, but those themes by Howard Shore were established, really, in The Lord of the Rings, which we're going to get to next. So looking forward to thinking about how Middle Earth is rendered musically across all the films. You know, it'd be really interesting to have a thread by our podcast listeners of music that they think should be included in The Lord of the Rings movies, in The Hobbit movies. That would be a fun subject to approach with our fans. Perhaps in our Facebook community. Yeah, definitely. Join our Facebook group. Join our Facebook group if you want to talk about stuff. If you just want one-way communication and have something to tell us, you can email us at gc8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. This is David. Signing off. Eric, I would love to see you post the review Not Enough Sharks on every film that you watch <laughs> from here on out. Please do that. I mean... <laughs> Not Enough Sharks in Lord of the Rings. Great. <laughs>